Welcome to Destination Murder, the true crime podcast. Each week, the hosts, that's us, BFS Megan and Tegan, cover stories from a new part of the world. Get ready to combat your travel bug and feed your true crime obsession. Good morning, Megan. Hello, Tegan. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I've got a a new setup that I'm recording with, so I already feel so much more comfortable than um, the last couple episodes, which is good. (laughs) You look like you have much more room to maneuver around your little um, podcasting tent. Yeah. (laughs) The podcast blanket fort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not um, in Cobra pros the entire time for like two hours, so my neck is feeling so much better already. Are you ready to get started? I think so. I'm ready to hear your case. So remind me where you're coming from today. Where's your case? Um, I am coming from the best place, uh, New South Wales, Australia. (laughs) Shout out to all of my family. Um, They, uh, I had a couple of them asking me to um, ask them for, for help with the cases, but I I looked briefly and I stumbled across this one immediately and I was like I have to do this one so I'm sorry um, Lorraine <laughs> I found a case I didn't ask you for help <laughs> okay so I am covering Catherine Knight the female Hannibal Lecter of Australia oh. My gosh, this sounds like it's going to be good. Yeah, you see why as soon as I saw it, I was like, I have to do it. Okay, so I got my sources from our favorite Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Rolling Stone Australia, ABC Australia, allthatisinteresting.com, and thetruecrimetimes.com. Alrighty, are you ready to get into it? Oh, yeah. So... To describe Catherine Knight's upbringing as unfortunate would be putting it lightly. Catherine was born and raised in an unconventional and dysfunctional family environment. Her mother, Barbara Rohan, was married to Jack Rohan and lived with him in the small town of Aberdeen, New South Wales. Barbara and Jack had four sons before Barbara began an adulterous relationship with Ken Knight, a friend and co-worker of her husband. Um, The Rohan and Knight families were well-known in the conservative rural town, and after the affair caused a major scandal. Local backlash forced Barbara and Ken to leave Aberdeen and move to Mori, which is actually um, the town that my grandfather's from. So, just found that out. And none of her four sons went with her. The two older boys she had stayed with their father, while the two younger sons were sent to to be raised by an aunt in Sydney. Barbara had four additional children with Ken, including two twin girls, Joy and Catherine, who were born in 1955 in Tenterfield. In 1959, when Catherine was four, Jack Rohan died, and the two boys who had been living with him moved in with Barbara and Ken. Sounds like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of children. Um, <laughs> Catherine was an Catherine's father was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape his wife, Barbara, up to 10 times a day. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Yeah. Like, 
Mm-mm. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how she hated sex and men. Yeah, gross, right? Later, when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted to take part in a sexual act she did not want to perform, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. So not really great advice from a mother. Um, Definitely not like a healthy... I mean, this was seems like it was like the 50s, but either way, it's really not a healthy way to approach sex yeah, at all. Nope. I mean, I don't blame the mother because she was being... Raped. Um, abused. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, Catherine claims she was frequently sexually assaulted by several members of her family, not her father, um, but other other people, um, which continued until she was 11. Oh, Although many have doubts about the details, psychiatric or psychiatrists accept her claim as her family members have confirmed the events did happen. Ugh, that's disgusting. I know, right? Okay, so um, Barbara's great-grandmother was an indigenous Australian from the Maori area who had married an Irishman. Barbara was very proud of the fact and identified as an Aboriginal. This was a kept family secret though as there was considerable racism in the area at the time and this was a source of tension for the children apart from her twin sister the only person who Catherine was close with was her uncle oscar who was a champion horseman she was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969 and continues to maintain that his ghost visits her this sounds like a lot of trauma yeah growing up yeah like a lot of trauma um, and, like, the fact that her, uh, she, like, still thinks that a ghost visits her is kind of spooky. Yeah. Um, so she attended Musselbrook High School. Catherine became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy in the school with a weapon and once injured by a teacher who was subsequently found to have acted in self-defense. So, like, she's just going around beating people up. No wonder she has so much anger from her trauma. Yeah. Upon leaving school at 15 without learning how to read or write, which is confusing to me, how did you get to 15 without having learning either of those skills? She was too busy beating people up. I guess so. Um, but she ended up getting a job as a cutter in a clothing factory. Twelve months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job, cutting offal, which is the entrails and internal organs of animals used for food, at the local abattoir, which is just like a fancy word for slaughterhouse. <laughs> her dream job. Yeah. There she was quickly promoted to boning and was given her own set of butcher's knives. At home, she... Okay, this is so weird to me. At home, the knives were hung over her bed so that she would always have them handy if needed. A habit she kept wherever she lived. That's weird. I hope they're, like, hung on the wall above her bed and not, like, string above her hanging down above her bed. Yeah, right? (laughs) And, like, to me, like, I could understand keeping them under the bed, but hanging above, like, that just sounds like a mistake bound to happen. Okay. While working at the abattoir, Catherine met David Kellett. 
a raging alcoholic much like her father, who was also prone to fistfights. David had previously worked on the railways at Coffs Harbor. His best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident, and he was also present when a train hit a school bus in Kempsey, killing six children in 1968. Oh my god. He helped rescue the injured and removed the bodies of the dead. No wonder he's an alcoholic. That's traumatizing. Yeah, my next line is literally, the heavy drinking was attributed to these incidents. For sure. So this is before therapy. Yeah. This is why we go to therapy yeah. now, people. Therapy because is because you don't good. have to do that to deal with your trauma. You can get help. Mm-hmm. We are big therapist activists here. I have multiple therapists. <laughs> and Tegan is my therapist. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I would not put that emotional burden on you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've got enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he was transferred to Musselbrook after causing several derailments due to falling asleep while shunting. His behavior deteriorated and eventually he lost the job. He soon got a job working at the nearby Aberdeen Abattoir, where he became close friends with Catherine's brother. Often, if David got into a fist fight, Catherine would step in and back him up. So, really tight couple there. True love. Yeah. In Aberdeen, she was well known for her physical, for her physically threatening anyone who upset her. In 1974, she convinced David to marry her. Um, He was heavily intoxicated the entire time, and at her request, the couple arrived at the service on her motorcycle with David holding on to her. So he wasn't even driving. It was, like, her driving the motorcycle, and then he's, like, on the backseat, like, holding on to her. Um... She kind of sounds like a badass. It's too bad that she probably murdered and, like, ate people. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what you're getting at <laughs> if she's the female Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm just going to apologize for my crude language that is about to come up, um, as this is um, quotations from Catherine's mother. Um, so if you don't want to hear me swear, mom and dad, you can skip forward. <laughs> Um, but as soon as they arrived to the service, Catherine's mother gave David this advice. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of cheating on her. She'll fucking kill you. She also told him she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Oh my god, that was her mom that said that about her? Yeah, like, right before he's, like, she's about to walk down the aisle, she's like, hey, come here. Um, my daughter is batshit crazy. Do you really want to do this? That's, like, when the overprotective dad is like, you do anything to my daughter, I'll kill you. <laughs> but the, if you do anything to my daughter... She will kill you. <laughs> she will kill you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not threatening you, I'm Learning warning you. you. <laughs> um... I would like to state now that David did not take this advice. Um, but anyways, on their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David. She later explained it was because he had fallen asleep after only having sex three times. When he fell asleep, Catherine wanted to go a fourth round and took issue with her husband's exhaustion. So she started to strangle him. David woke up and managed to fight her off. Oh my god. Yeah. 
And, like, I think that she has, like, a really weird relationship with sex, probably because of the sexual assaults that she had and, like, being around her mother. But, like, also she's become very, like, the dominant one in all of these relationships. And she kind of uses sex as, like, um, a tool of power, I guess. But she also gets very angry when she doesn't get what she wants. So So even though she attempted to kill him one night into their marriage, uh, the union lasted for more than 10 years. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. He really said, till death do us part. (laughs) Um, Their marriage provided particularly violent. And on one occasion, the heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of David's clothes and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after he reached the finals. Aww. Your face. She's like, I don't care that you did really well in the darts thing. You're home five minutes late. Yeah. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Very abusive. So he is suffering domestic abuse from her. Yeah. Um... In fear of his life, David fled before collapsing into the neighbor's house, and he was treated for severe fractures in his skull. The police wanted to charge Catherine, but she convinced David to drop the charges. Like, I think it's important to talk about, um, you know, sexual assaults is definitely more, um, uh, women are more the victims, but um, I think that men who are abused by their um, partners um, have a h- bigger issue with it because they're supposed to be the the strong and powerful one, and I think that they hold a lot more um, shame from it for sure. I don't know if you'd agree. I don't know. I think there is a big. I don't know the statistics, and I don't I haven't done any research, but I think like you know toxic masculinity is like oh the man has to be strong he can't give in to his emotions like especially what this was in like the 60s or 70s like there would be no sort of message like there is now where men are just as vulnerable as women and like they need to seek help for their like emotional trauma and issues and like it's just as much of an issue in women as in men he wouldn't have had that at all yeah so Um, okay. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left Catherine for another woman, (laughs) um, and moved to Queensland, apparently unable to go cope with Catherine's abuse. So fair enough. Yeah. Um, good for him. The next day she was seen pushing her new baby in a pram down the main street, violently throwing the pram from side to side. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Catherine placed two-month-old Melissa on the railway line shortly before a train was due. (gasps) What? Oh, my God. She was like, well, David, if you're going to leave me, I'm going to kill our child. It's basically her train of thought. Okay, she then stole an axe and went around town threatening to kill several people. Fortunately, a man known as Old Ted was foraging (laughs) a mushroom picker near the railway line. He found and rescued Melissa all by, according to 
several accounts only minutes before the train passed. So just in time. Tegan, we need to start foraging. Yeah. Foragers find the darndest things. I know. Screw, um, like, metal detectors on the beach. Like, we just really need to go from, for the mushrooms. Maybe we'll find some truffles, yeah. too. Like, that. Like there's so many possibilities for, for us. New hobby 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was rescued. Knight was arrested and taken to St. Elmo's Hospital again. But apparently she recovered and signed herself out the following day. Because one day is enough to deal with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, a few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded she drive her to Queensland to find David. So I don't know if this... Uh, was it, like, just stranger that she found on the street and she was, like, walking around with her knives and she was like, Hey, drive me to Queensland. Um, <laughs> the woman escaped after they stopped at a service station but by the time the police had ra- had arrived, Catherine had taken a young boy hostage and was threatening him with the knife. <laughs> her and her knives. Oh, my goodness. I know. Some, she sh- really shouldn't be allowed to have any. Um, she was disarmed when the police attacked her with brooms. <laughs> Do they not have guns? Or, like, batons or something? <laughs> like, what? Did they just, like, all have, like brooms in their like cars and they were like whack whack i don't know um that's so funny (laughs) (laughs) she was admitted to the morissette psychiatric hospital um catherine told the nurses she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired david's car which had allowed him to leave and then he planned or then she planned to kill both David and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. When the police informed David of the incident, he left his girlfriend and moved to Aberdeen with his mother to support Catherine. So, like... Oh, so now he's back. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why he would do that, but also, like, obviously she's mentally ill and it's good for him. Like, it's very good on him for wanting to support her, but, like, she's trying to murder you. Like, don't go back to that. Well, she was released. Oh, nice. <laughs> Catherine was released on August 9th, 1976, into the care of her mother-in-law and David. They moved to Woodridge, a suburb of Brisbane, where she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. Um, back to her dream job. Yeah. Here we go. Back, back with the knives. <laughs> in March of... March 6, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie, um, and in 1984, Catherine left David and moved um, first to her parents' house in Aberdeen and then rented a house nearby Musselbrook. Although she returned to work at the abattoir, she injured her back the following year and went on disability pension, no longer needing rent Accommodation close to her work, the government gave her housing, gave her a housing commission residence in Aberdeen. So now David Kellett is out of the picture. Um, but then in 1986, shortly after her breakup with David, Catherine jumped into a whirl, whirlwind romance with David Saunders. So she just moved from David to David. Um, okay. She got a type. Yeah, clearly. Or she just doesn't like to confuse names. So she's just like, David, 
meaning the other one, but he would never know. So David Saunders was a local miner. Uh, Within a few months, David moved in with her and her two daughters. However, he kept his apartment, and Catherine became incredibly jealous and suspicious of what he did when she wasn't around. Like her previous relationship, this one grew toxic and violent very quickly. Um, At one point, she slit the throat of his two-month-old dingo puppy (gasps) in front of him just to show him what she was capable of. The poor dingo. I know. But I also don't know, like, dingoes are, like, wild animals. So, yeah. like, it would be like having a coyote. So, I'm not sure if it was, like, a dingo breed of some sort. Um, because it doesn't really make sense to me to why he would have a dingo puppy. Um, I also don't know if this is just, like, written by someone who, like, doesn't know any better. Like... An American or something. Yeah, who doesn't know a dingo is a, a wild animal. Anyways, still they stayed together and they even had a daughter together a year later. However, David left Catherine shortly after the birth because she had attempted to kill him with a pair of scissors. She really like, likes sharp metal. Um, I wonder if David had a problem with her hanging the knives above the bed. He's like, please don't do that. I don't want them falling like, on me. I think you're going to kill me in my sleep. Please don't. Um, oh, that would be terrifying. Yeah. I'm glad he got out of that relationship. Well. Oh, no. He did. And then <laughs> she met a man named John Chillingworth. They stayed together for three years and had a child, Eric, Catherine's first son. While no violent incidents were reported about their relationship, it ended after John learned that Catherine was having an affair with a man named John Price. So again, so she went David to David, and then David to John, and then John to John. That's so weird. Like, I don't know what her deal... David, David, John, John. Is, like, all the men in Australia in the 80s named David or John? Like, I don't know. Uh, anyways, yeah, so John Price, um, the beginning of Catherine and John's relationship was without any complications. He had two older children who lived with him and seemed to like Catherine. He had made enough money as a minor to keep her comfortable. They moved in together in 1995, and things were going smoothly. However, when she suggested that they get married, he declined, and she got very violent. Smart move on his part. Yeah, uh, very smart move. <laughs> Although maybe not smart move if she was violent. Um. Well, okay, so she she um, changed things up a little bit this time. Um, she framed John from stealing things from his company and got him fired. Um, though he initially, initially kicked her out, a few months later they started seeing each other again. However, this time he refused to let her move back in. Smart move. This was in, like, the first five years of their relationship. So, on February, or in February 2000, a series of assaults on John culminated with Catherine stabbing him in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of his house again. On February 29th, he stopped by the Sconce Magistrate Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order in attempt to keep her away from both himself and his children. That afternoon, John told his co-worker that if he didn't come to work the next day, it would be because Catherine had murdered him. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. I can't imagine being in that position where someone I was in a relationship with is trying to kill me. Yeah, that would be really I can't imagine scary. the fear he would have felt. Yeah. Um, despite his co-workers' pleas that John should not return home, he stated that he was afraid Catherine would kill his children if he did, he wasn't there to protect them. Why wouldn't he, like, take them and go somewhere else? I don't know. I do not know. So, John went home to find that Catherine had sent the children away for a sleepover at the friends, at friends' houses. He then spent the evening with his neighbors before returning home and going to bed at 11 p.m. Um, this part is a little weird. Um, earlier that day, Catherine had gone out and bought a new black lingerie set and videotaped all of her children while making comments which have seen uh, since been interpreted as crude. So I don't know what the heck that means. Um... But it sounds pretty disgusting. Um, She later arrived at John's house while he was sleeping. She sat and watched television for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke John up and they had sex, after which he fell asleep. So, I don't know if she raped him because I don't know why you would have sex with someone you have a restraining order against. There's no way that he would have given full consent if he was scared so scared of her i also don't know why he would have fallen asleep while she was still in his house but uh maybe she drugged him maybe maybe (laughs) anyways at 6 a.m the next day the neighbors became concerned that john's car was still in the driveway and when he did not arrive to work his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on john's bedroom window to wake him but they alerted the police after noticing blood on the front door. Police arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, police found John's body with Catherine in a comatose after taking a large number of pills. She had stabbed John with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping, according to the blood evidence. He had awoke, tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Catherine chased him through the house. (laughs) And I know that this is awful, but all I can picture is, like, this half-asleep guy and this girl in lingerie just, like, running after him with a knife and that, like, slasher music. Yeah. Sounds like a scene out of Scary Movie. Yeah. Um, So he managed to open the front door and get outside, but he either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the house down the hallway when he finally died after, or where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Catherine went into Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from John's account at an ATM. John's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and the back of his body, with many of the wounds extending into vital organs. Yeah. Oh, dear. So, before, like, after she killed him and before the police found her, she'd gone to an ATM and withdrawn money? Yeah, she withdrew $1,000 and then came home and took a whole bunch of pills. So I don't really know what her thought process was there. She's like, oh, they they came in and attacked and killed John and then forced me to go to the ATM and then drugged me. I don't know. that She could have clearly used that as a defense, but uh, you'll find out that she does not. I don't think no. anyone would have believed her. 
So several hours after John had died, Catherine skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. It gets worse. It always gets worse. Oh, no. Um, She decapitated John and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with place settings for settings for Jonathan and Beck, John's two children. That is disgusting. This is and this is all in that night. Yeah. Yeah. She was preparing to serve his body to his Oh kids. my god, that is so gross. But his kids didn't No eat it? No. They okay, didn't. good. A third meal was thrown out onto the back lawn for unknown reasons. It is speculated that Catherine had attempted to eat it but could not. John's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated at between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place earlier in the morning. Oh, that is so gross. Yeah. Oh, that is so gross. Um, and then <laughs> sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with a le- with the left arm draped over an empty soft drink bottle with his legs crossed. This was claimed in court to be an act of defilement demonstrating Catherine's contempt for John. Catherine had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of John, bloodstained and covered in some small pieces of his flesh. And this is really confusing to me. I don't quite understand it, but it's read, Time to get back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You too, Beck, for Ross, for little Jonathan. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. So I don't really know what she was trying to say there, but the accusations in the note were found to be untrue. So when the trial commenced in October of 2001, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out. So people were like, people were like dropping out because they couldn't stomach the case? Yeah. Because it was so gross. We would be like, yes, I will be a jury member. (laughs) Yes, please. I would like more information on this. Um, I also don't know why people never want to do jury duty. Like, I can't wait for the day that my name is called. I just want... Me too. I was thinking that the other day. I was like, people complain about jury duty, but man, that would be so interesting. The only thing that would suck is if... It was one of those really, really tough cases that goes on for, like, three weeks and you're not allowed to leave your hotel room because it's, like, a high-profile case and you can't look at the news. Yeah. I'd also be very disappointed if I had to be on a jury duty for, like, a a car incident that was, like, you know, something minor. Like a car crash, you know? Like, I want want something more juicy than that. (laughs) (laughs) We're so terrible. I know. Um, Anyways... Um, Catherine's attorney then spoke to the judge who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. It was then made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of a guilty plea and if she was fit to make such a plea. 
So Catherine's legal team had planned to defend Catherine by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her sane. Two psychiatrists concluded that Catherine suffered from borderline personality disorder, which... She definitely suffered from something. some disorder. Yeah. yeah. No legal reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Catherine still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Catherine's lawyers requested she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. When Timothy Lyons took to the stand to describe the skinning and the decapitation, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. It, it was definitely premeditated, though. I was just thinking about this because she sent the kids away on the sleepover. Oh, she definitely knew what she was doing. Yeah. She was pissed. Okay, this is going to be gross. Um, okay. The Supreme Court sentencing judge, Barry O'Keefe, stated that this was carried out with considerable expertise and obviously a steady hand, so that his skin, including that of his head, face, nose, ears, neck, torso, genital organs, and legs, was removed so as to form one pelt. <gasps> yeah. Oh. Okay, it's about to get worse. Oh no, Tegan, how can it get worse? So expertly was it done that after the post-mortem examination, the skin was able to be re-sewn onto Mr. Price's body in a way which indicated a clear and appropriate, albeit grisly, methodology. I'm speechless. I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah. It's, in like, insane. I'm going to continue while you're si sitting there speechless. Um, on... November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment and re refused to fix a non-parole period and ordered that her papers be marked as never be released. This is the first time that this has been that this has been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Wow. So she's never getting out. In Wow. Is she still alive? Yeah. Oh, she's like our parents' age. She's a couple years older than her parents. In June 2006, Catherine appealed the life sentence, claiming that the penalty of life in prison without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Excuse me? No. <laughs> yeah. Justices Peter McLean, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal in September. With Justice McLean writing in his judgment, this was an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. So, to this day, Catherine nevertheless maintains her innocence and refuses to accept responsibility for her actions. Catherine Knight has appeared or has appealed her sentence before and was denied almost immediately. She is still serving her life sentence in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. And that is the story of Catherine Knight. Wow. I had never heard of that. It's terrifying. Yeah. See what I mean when I said that, like, as soon as I saw this case, I was just like, I have to. It's crazy. Absolutely wild. Like, so gruesome. But then you have to think, like, how her childhood development was impacted. Like, she might not have been the same person if she was safe growing up. Yeah. But then it also, you know... um, like, yeah, it really sucks that that's how she grew up, but there's lots of people 
who grow up in those environments and and don't murder some people. Yeah, that's and very try and true. feed them to that person's children. But like, yeah, no, it definitely could have been like a triggering thing that you know just sent her brain over the edge to do that. But yeah, good job, Tegan. Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome, but um, I feel like it had to be shared. Alrighty, alrighty, Megan. I'm ready to hear your story. We're going to Panama now, right? Yep. Mm. Tegan, I think you know this story because I think we talked about it a little bit in the past. And I know like some podcasts that we both listened to have covered it. Um, but I'm excited. Yeah, I- so it'll be interesting because you know some of this case as well. So I hope I do. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. Okay. Yeah. As I tell it, you let me know if you, you know it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I got um, my sources from truecrimediva.com, True Crime Garage podcast. Um, they did a two-part series on this. And then caudacas.com, uh, which is a Dutch true crime blog. Oh. But it's funny because caudacas literally translates to cold cheese. And the English translation on the website was cold case. And I ran it through Mike. I was like, does this mean cold cheese? He's like, yeah, it does. So I don't know if they <laughs> wanted to literally translate cold case to cold cheese or if it's just kind of like a funny um, play on words. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so this website, codecast.blogspot.com, has this massive deep dive into this case. There's an article by Scarlett R., um, on the website, so I'll link that in our show notes, which you can find on our website and I, and linked in the uh, kind of description of this podcast. But if you want to get really dig deep into this, um, you can go there. There's probably like 12 hours of reading just in that one article about this case. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Tegan, I'm doing the case of the Disappearance of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon in Panama. So Panama is a country in Central America. It's most famously known for the Panama Canal, uh, which is commonly described as like the dividing point between South and North America. Panama is a popular tourist destination, like lots of tropical forests and beaches. And that is exactly what Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon were doing when they disappeared in Panama in 2014. Chris and Lisanne were two young Dutch women from Amersfoort, the Netherlands, um, which is actually quite near where I lived in the Netherlands. It's like the next town over from Utrecht. Oh, cool. Yeah. Chris had just graduated from Utrecht University, which is the school that I went to, Um so, yeah, kind of a little bit spooky. Like, li- reading this case, it's like, oh, this is really spooky because, like, I just see so many similarities yeah. between us and these two girls. So, Chris had just graduated from Utrecht University, and she was described as open, creative, and responsible. Chris was 21, and Lisanne was 22. Lisanne had also just graduated from un- university, and she was described as optimistic, intelligent, and very athletic. She was a volleyball player. I think she might have played for her school. The two worked at a cafe together and were roommates and they were good friends. They saved up money uh, from the cafe 
uh, for six months to go to Panama on a gap year post-graduation trip to learn Spanish and volunteer in a school f- uh, with uh, Panamanian uh-huh. children. That sounds like fun. Maybe volunteering as English teachers. I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. For Lisanne, this would be her first time out of Europe. And Chris was a little bit more experienced. She traveled, she'd been to South America before uh, with her parents. Okay. And Lisanne was more introverted and Chris seemed to be more extroverted. So the girls toured Panama for two weeks before heading to the town where they'd be staying with, um, in a homestay and volunteering for, I think, two weeks at the school or maybe four weeks. I'm not sure. The town, Bocate, is a popular expat destination and sees a lot of tourism due to the environment. So it's really high up in the mountains. There's a popular volcano with lots of hiking trails nearby and breathtaking views of the continental divide. So this is like you can go up and see the Pacific Ocean on one side and then the like Caribbean Sea on the other because Panama is so skinny. Um, I'm going to stop you right here. Yeah. I know what this case is. I know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited because I, I, I know a little bit about it, but I don't know a lot. So I'm excited to hear. Uh, so, yeah, Boquete is in the northwest of Panama, so closer to the border of Costa Rica than the border of Colombia. It's high altitude and has around 20,000 people who live there. So the girls, after two weeks of touring um, Panama, they rocked up to Boquete but there had been a miscommunication with the school they were supposed to be volunteering at, and they actually had arrived a week early, which was odd because the, the school had apparently confirmed that they started when they arrived on the correct day, but then I guess something went wrong. I'm not quite sure. But their homestay was ready, so they went to stay with their homestay. Since they had this week of extra time, they decided to spend the week um, exploring Bocate and touring uh, the local hikes. So on April 1st, they set out for a hike. Around 10 a.m. on April 1st, the two girls went to a trail called uh, El Pianista Trail, which I think translates to either piano or piano player. Um, they hailed a cab, which took them took them to the trailhead. And in addition to a local dog, the girls took with them a small blue backpack, their cell phones, and a camera. They were in tank tops, jean shorts, and hiking boots, so really not optimal hiking gear. Uh, you look like you know what's going to happen. You look very <laughs> yeah. stressed out. Because I know. <laughs> also, when you're hiking, you should always bring more clothes than you're wanting yeah. to go in. Yeah. Just um, a tip. <laughs> but yeah, so it seemed like they planned for a short trip, which is kind of an important detail. Okay, so the trail, El Pianista Trail, it's four kilometers long and takes about three hours to hike up to the summit and three hours to hike back. It's not a loop trail. You go out and back. Oh, wow. It's called El Pianista or the piano because of the way the trail looks. There's apparently a series of switchbacks and steps like the keys of a piano. It's not considered dangerous and it's a popular trail with um, locals and tourists. Um I'm sure with those views, like, that would be gorgeous to see. Yeah, and, like, a three-hour hike, it's it's long. Well, I guess six-hour return. But it's a long hike, but it's doable in a day. Um, and you get such breathtaking views at the top. Um, on a clear day, you can see, like, back down to the um, town of Bocate. 
And the summit is only about eight kilometers from Bocate, but it is quite the hike, like quite the elevation change. So it takes like eight kilometers might take like six hours of walking, uh, depending on the terrain. Once you get to the summit, the trail continues, but it's not popular really with tourists like you could go but apparently it gets quite treacherous the farther down you go and it's only really used by locals but there are some there there's like villages past like not not really anything to see if you were a tourist yeah i looked up some photos of the trail and it's it's like pretty clearly defined uh at least in 2018 so four years after the girls hiked the trail up until april 1st both of the girls had been messaging their friends and families back home consistently on whatsapp after April 1st, so after they went out on the hike, Chris and Lizanne's family stopped receiving messages. Around 5 p.m. the night the girls went on the hike, the dog who had gone on the hike with them returned to his owner's home. The next morning on April 2nd, 2014, Chris and Lizanne's homestay mom set out breakfast for them before she went to work. The two girls had made an appointment with a local guide for a private walking slash sightseeing slash hiking tour that day. Um, but they didn't show up to meet him. So when they didn't show up, he went to look for them at their homestay. Small town of 20,000 people. I think, you know, you know who has a homestay, you know who's staying where. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that weird uh, that he knew where they lived. So the guide went inside the home to look for Lisanne and Chris. Apparently there was another woman with him. Like there was the guide and then a German woman who lived in the town um, who the homestay lady knew and so they um gave that she like lent them a spare key and they went in to look and the guide could tell that like the girls hadn't eaten the breakfast that the homestay mom had put out on the table for them and the guide said he like could tell that no one had slept in their room that night yeah him and some people from the school that the girls were supposed to volunteer with the following week went out looking for the girls around town, but their search didn't really show up anything. Like, the girls hadn't told anyone that they were going out on this Alpinista hike, so no one knew where they were supposed to be. Another good advice about hiking is that you always tell someone where you're going. Okay. And tell when you're expected to be back. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I'm surprised that they didn't tell their homestays. Yeah. I, th- I think they just maybe saw it and were like, oh, let's go check it out. Yeah. Because um, something said they had an appointment with the guide to go up that same trail the following day. So this is a thing about this case. There's a lot of things that don't add up, things that people get wrong or like multiple stories of the same thing. So it's hard determining what the real thing is. Like... The Dutch government investigated the case and the Panamanian, like, police officials investigated the case. And, like, they both had different facts and different um, evidence and different conclusions about that evidence. So it's interesting. So when the guide and the homestay mom and the people from the school couldn't find the girls, they contacted the authorities and they also contacted the girls' families back in the Netherlands. On April 3rd, authorities and the locals conducted a search through the forest and from the air, but they couldn't find the girls. One of the problems is that they didn't they didn't tell anyone where they were going. So, like other than the taxi driver who had dropped them off. Yeah. Um so they didn't know exactly where to look. 
after not hearing anything from the girls and knowing that they were missing, on April 6th, 2014, Chris and Lizanne's parents and Dutch officials uh, flew to Panama from the Netherlands to search for them. Oh, wow. They conducted a search of the El Pinista Trail with dogs, local police, and Dutch detectives for 10 whole days. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. The Dutch officials claimed it was, quote, very unlikely for them to disappear with no trace from the trails. In addition, the Dutch search group blamed Panamanian authorities for blundering the search and the investigation, but there's not really any proof that they did. It seemed like the Panamanian officials were investigating investigating this, this disappearance as an accidental hiking disappearance, and the Dutch were convinced something had happened to them. Yeah. Which... I mean, I, I don't blame them for thinking something had happened to them if if the Dutch, like, the Dutch investigation was so focused on what the girls' parents were saying. Like, they're so, like, they wouldn't have deviated from the trail. They were so, they had planned everything out. They were so, um, like, responsible. And the Panamanian officials are like, well, tourists go missing here all the time. Or not tourists, but, like, hikers. Yeah. It's easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. Heartbreakingly, the search didn't find anything, and the parents had to return to the Netherlands without their daughters and without finding anything, like, any evidence. That must have been so hard. Yeah. And Lizanne's parents were also, like, they had... She... This was her first trip out of Europe. Like, they must have been so worried about her. They must have been, like, you know, you're old enough, you can go, but just be really, really careful. And then this happens. It's it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, like, your parents' worst nightmare coming to life yeah 10 weeks go by um so now it's june 2014 and the guide that the girls had hired to tour them around on april 2nd the day after they had gone missing he turned in lisanne's blue backpack to the police it had been found by an indigenous woman uh kind of north of the trail so kind of past the summit like by like eight hours or 10 hours walking or whatever the woman had given it to the guide i mean small town people would have known that this guy was involved in the search so they would have turned it over to him like it makes sense it's not i don't think it's suspicious or anything no i agree the woman the woman said that she had found it while tending to her rice paddy where it had been found wedged along the bank of the Culebra River, I think is how you say it, uh, near the remote Alto Romero village, which is apparently 12 hours away by walking from where the girls had been. So it's It's a fair distance, especially when they were only supposed to go three hours out of the city. Three hours up, three hours back. Yeah. Uh, The woman swore that it was not there the day before. Police then investigated the backpack they thought it had likely drifted down the river, but the backpack was completely dry. Nothing in it was water damaged. It had electronics in it. It had two phones and a digital camera. Neither of them had any water damage. That gave me chills. Yeah. Oh, this case gets creepier. I was how ha- like the hair on my neck was raised Ugh. last night while researching it. Yeah. Um, and the backpack wasn't waterproof, so it's really weird that it would be no water damage at all yeah even if the backpack hadn't been in the river there had been heavy rains in the past week so it's 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 even more odd that it, there's no water damage at all and it didn't look like it had been in the jungle for two months so inside the backpack um investigators found the girl's cell phones lizanne's passport 
two neatly folded bras, which matched the bras that the girls were wearing the day of the hike, two pairs of sunglasses, a water bottle, about $80 in US dollars, Chris's medical insurance card, a digital camera, a candy wrapper, or it could have been a lozenge because the host mom reported that Lizanne had like a cough earlier the day and had asthma. Some reports say a key was found in the bag. Some reports say there was no key, uh, which some people find suspicious. Like it would have been their room key. Yeah. So it's, I didn't really see much about it, but it's kind of weird that there wasn't a room key found. That's so weird that their bras were in there. Okay, that's something that really weirds me out. Yeah. Also, everything was, like, neatly packed and put into the bag. Yeah, so it wasn't like it was stuffed in. I couldn't imagine taking my bra off during a hike. Like, there would be no reason for that. Yeah. Or, like, even, like, if I got lost and, like, sleeping in the woods, like, I'd keep all my clothes on me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I wouldn't go, like, be like, okay, nighttime, time to take my bra off, like. Unless they had gone swimming or something. But I still wouldn't take my... I would take my shirt off, not my bra. I would keep my bra on, even in the jungle. Yeah. Like... It's very weird. Okay. Even more weird was there were 34 sets of fingerprints found in the backpack, 13 on the backpack, 12 on the phones and camera, and six different ones on the bras. The DNA that was found, I guess, through these fingerprints or something, um contained genetic material of two unknown people and determined that two sets of fingerprints were from unknown women. I'm not sure how they determined that, but I don't know, forensics. Uh, But these leads were never investigated by the Panamanian officials on the case, which is suspicious. But if you find a backpack on the side of the river, I would look through it. Like, it seems like the woman found it. A bunch of people looked through it, realized this is probably from the girls who went missing. Yeah. And then gave it to the guide who they knew was kind of involved. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they didn't investigate to, like, try to find out who these fingerprints were from. But it doesn't really... Like, it's if they think it's an accident, they're like, oh, okay, well, people who found it went through. So now we get into a little bit of a more creepy part. Ooh, I'm not ready. You look scared. I am. You look- hugging yourself (laughs) investigators were able to pull data from their cell phones the girls first tried to contact emergency services around 4 40 p.m on april 1st about 30 minutes to an hour after they should have returned safely to bocate but there was no service so their calls didn't go through 10 minutes later they tried again both the dutch emergency number 112 and the panamanian emergency number 911 but still no service After those two calls, their phones were then switched off, probably to conserve uh, battery. Yeah, smart thing to do. Yeah, but they didn't try calling again until 14 hours later, which is kind of a long time. Yeah, Um, could the the cell, like, I guess it probably couldn't, if there was no service, they don't know exactly where they were. Yeah, they can't, like, triangulate their location. On April 2nd, so the day after they left for their hike... They tried calling 911 again four times, both phones alternating. 
Uh, my thought is that they may have been like hiking and turning their phones on to find to see if there was service every so often. So like Chris calls, tr- Chris tries to call, it doesn't connect. So they hike for two hours. Lizanne tries to call, it doesn't connect. So they hike for two hours and so on and so forth. Yeah. But the first of these calls around 7 a.m. had actually connected to 112 for about two seconds before the call was ended and the phone was turned off literally 30 seconds later, which is weird. Yeah. Because if you're calling 911 and you connect even for a second, I would stay there and try to keep calling. Yeah. Not turn my phone off. Maybe she didn't notice, but this is one thing that people are like, well maybe someone interrupted them and they and like forced them to turn their phones off Mm -hmm. so yeah that was that's really strange because like they they powered the phone off 30 seconds later after connecting for just a moment yeah i wouldn't have done that yeah i wouldn't have done that either i would have stayed there and tried to call again so after their last call on the second day and then their first call on day three is almost 20 hours so after trying to call emergency throughout the first day there was 20 hour gap before they tried to call again which is really long yeah so yeah that just is so creepy and it doesn't make sense because i can't rationalize like maybe they were panicked maybe they didn't really like you don't know exactly what you would think in that situation but it is just really weird yeah that they waited that long yeah i'd be trying like every half an hour (laughs) Mm mm-hmm Over the next couple days, the phones were turned on and off again, perhaps looking for signal, but they never tried to call again. On day five, Lizanne's Samsung phone battery had died. Chris's iPhone was turned on and off for a while and then left off from the seventh day of their disappearance to the tenth day of their disappearance and then turned on for the last time on April 11th. So like 10 or 11 days afterwards. Yeah of them yeah after they go missing on that day the phone stayed on for one hour before it turned off and was never turned on again this is strange because it's a long time for battery uh, for a battery to last in the jungle i guess it wouldn't be cold so the battery would not be drained as quickly um but According to Dutch forensic people, their phones were only at 50% battery when they started the hike, but I'm not sure how they could find this out. Yeah. So I'm not 100% sure about how true that is, but it's just interesting because I don't know about you, but an iPhone 4 battery would not last for 10 days at 50%. No. I wonder if they had a disposable charger or not a disposable one, but like a external charger that was just never found. That honestly, that could be a possibility. Yeah, because we don't know what they had in the backpack when they set out for the hike. They could have yeah. had a little bit more food. They could have had more clothing. Yeah, they could have dropped some of it when they were trying to lose weight and kind of conserve their energy for sure. Also important to note, before Lizanne's phone died on day six, there were multiple attempts uh, and to unlock Chris's iPhone using the passcode. After Lizanne's phone died, whenever Chris's iPhone was turned on, the person who was using it was not able to do the correct passcode. So either they got the passcode wrong or they didn't even try, which is creepy. Yeah, I remember that from the case. That's really weird. Yeah. 
that made me think that um, when I had thought about this or listened to this case before, it had made me think that one of them had maybe passed away at that point. Um, and the other one was trying to to um, get access to the phone. Or some people think a third person was trying to get access. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, continue. Spooky, spooky. Yeah. Some sources say that uh, there was about 80 attempts with different PIN codes to get into Chris's phone during these days. Oh, my God. How long was that disabl- disabled for? Like, I know. <laughs> maybe it wasn't turned on for that many days because it was, like, disabled for 300 days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, this makes me think that either Chris was not with Lizanne after April 5th when the iPhone codes began getting in- entered incorrectly or someone other than the girls was entering it, which is actually what Dutch investigators think, or Chris was somehow um, incapacitated and couldn't communicate to Lizanne the code. Yeah. So that's the phones. Now the camera. Yes, the camera. The creepiest part. Investigators found 113 photos on Lizanne's camera from the backpack. The first photos are of them on their hike. Selfies and shots of the trail and um, pictures of each of the girls at the summit. The weather was great out. Blue skies, a little bit of cloud, um, but great weather. And the photos of them at the summit were taken around 1 p.m., according to the camera. Photos then showed them hiking past the summit, where it is generally recommended for people to turn around. And there is one missing photo. So there's all of these photos of the girls hiking on the summit, and then there's one photo that is missing. Photo uh, image 509 is what the camera would have automatically called it um and there's lots of speculation around this one missing photo the true crime garage podcast on this case is actually called like uh photo 509 or image 509 or something um because people think it was deleted not by the girls some people think the police department deleted it some people think maybe a third person who was with them deleted it um, or maybe there was just a camera glitch. I'm not yeah. really sure. Or they took a bad photo of themselves and they were like, mm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotta delete that because that's definitely something I would do. I'd be like, immediately delete this. It will never see the light of day ever again. Yeah, people thought that, but then no, literally no other photos of their trip had been deleted oh. before. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no one really knows why this photo is missing, but... Apparently, when a photo is deleted off of, like, the type of camera they have, the data is not actually fully deleted. It just kind of clears the space until the more space is needed, and then it deletes the, all the data from that photo. So experts would still be able to recover the photo, but they weren't able to do that in, the, in this case, which is where the speculation about, oh, someone who found it later deleted it off of a computer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Also, if they were to delete it right after they um, took it, there would be a photo on there called photo image 509. Like when the camera numbers images, it goes 508, 509, 510. But if they were to delete 509, the next one would just be called 509. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of speculation about this. But either way, this photo is kind of like the middle point between photos of them taken on the summit 
and then a series of 90 photos taken in the middle of the night. Yeah. This, oh, oh my god, I'm getting I know, chills. me too. Oh, it's... Uh, okay. It's so creepy. I had to stop, like, at this point a couple of times because it's just so creepy to me. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> We're, like, working ourselves up and I someone know. listening to this is probably just like, they're just it's, photos. Like, yeah. why are you guys so freaked out? <laughs> it's weird, guys, okay? <laughs> You'll understand in a few mm-hmm. moments. So after the photos of them on April 1st on their hike, there's a week of no photos. Then the camera was used to take a series of 90 photos in the middle of the night between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. These photos are so creepy. I, um, I personally think they were being used to try to see something in the middle of the night or try to navigate because most are just out and there's like rocks and then like black. Can you see pictures of them? Like are they did you look at them? Yeah, the photos are online. Oh my goodness. The um the article on the Dutch blog that's linked in our show notes has um a, a whole bunch of them. But most of them are just like there's rocks in front of them that are lit up and then there's like you can see like reflections of raindrops that are falling and then just kind of like darkness. Um they're they're really creepy like I'm trying to picture myself in the pitch black taking photos with like the jungle lighting up flashing at like seconds at a time oh yeah no but yeah and people some people think like some nighttime hikers were like well that would just make it worse because your eyes acclimatize to the darkness and then taking these photos would like blind you and make it worse yeah no so some people are like there's no way that they were using these to see and some people are like well someone might have been trying to document things but yeah um so most of the photos are out into the night but then there are some weird close-up ones of chris's hair which is odd like chris was had red hair and you can see it's obviously like it's obviously her hair um, but it's kind of hanging in a way that she could be walking. Like, it's not... It looks like it's movement. So maybe it was taken from, like, while she was leaning over the camera or something. But it's, like, really close up into her hair. Some people think that they can see, like, blood. But I looked at it. I didn't see any blood in her hair. It's also weird because these were taken in the middle of the night after someone had been trying to get into Chris's iPhone. So she was either incapacitated that night or a third party was trying to get access to her phone or for some reason, you know, this is what, 10 days without food, without a lot of water. Um, I think they were, they must have been like hallucinating or severely dehydrated and hallucinating and maybe Chris could have forgotten the pin code to her phone. I feel like that might be... The other thing that I think of, too, is if they've got phones, like, I'm pretty sure the all the time that iPhones have been around, they've had the flashlight button. So why would you use a camera flash that is uh, a, a short burst of light instead of using mm-hmm. your phone for a couple seconds? And I understand wanting to conserve the battery power, but if someone was trying to get into the phone already, then why wouldn't you just use your the phone's flashlight instead yeah i don't know even if chris wasn't able to use the phone you can still swipe up to have the control panel and do the flashlight without locking or like without yeah 
getting into the phone. Like, even in 2014, the software allowed you to do that. Yeah. So, like, that definitely was an option for them to do. Were there any photos... I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking you again. But were there any photos that they took on their phone cameras? Or were... Did they exclusively just use the the camera that they had brought with them? They exclusively just had the camera. Mm. There was a screenshot that was taken on Chris's iPhone, um, but people, investigators think this was just an accident. Yeah, um, it's very easy when they to do that. Were trying to call nine one one. Yeah, it's really easy to do that. And like, if you took a screenshot, you would not be concerned with deleting it when you have when you're lost in the jungle. Yeah. Some other people think that these photos were um, taken to try to signal someone that they thought was looking for them. But honestly, I think that, and like, they're all really blurry. There's nothing really in the photos. What I think is that maybe Lizanne was just so dehydrated that she was hallucinating and taking photos of something that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, she probably thought something was there that wasn't. Yeah. Ooh, that's that's like my worst nightmare. It's so terrifying. Also, there was this one photo is really weird, but it's like this little twig contraption that they've sat on a rock and there's like pieces of um orange plastic bag. And there was an or- another orange plastic bag found in their bedroom that they were like, "Oh, it, they must have had this orange plastic bag on them." But it's like got orange plastic bag pieces on this stick and some people are like oh they were using it to catch water but I looked at it and I was like I don't know how you would use this to catch water yeah it was really weird and like I don't know why but I just imagined that there would be streams all over the place anyways so why would they be trying to catch Mm -hmm. rainwater well like you don't really know what's in that water I would assume it's clean but you're still not supposed to really drink drink from jungle streams. Yeah. I honestly, <laughs> I think I would. If you're in the wood for 10 days, yeah. I would not care if I got, like, explosive diarrhea or something <laughs> yeah. from the germs in it. I, you need water. Yeah. But also, if you got explosive diarrhea, that could kill you at that point. Yeah, probably not the way you want to go either. She died in the woods because of explosive diarrhea. This is disgusting. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> So those photos were taken over a three-hour period, and there's, like, no... Like, you can't really tell. You can't make any conclusions off of that. So that was the phone and the camera. And the thing that confuses me is that there were no messages drafted to their friends and family. There were no selfies of them. There were no photos of them trying to explain what had happened to them. If... I got lost, I would be leaving messages for my loved ones. I would record a video message of myself saying what happened. I would be, you know, drafting a text message, trying to maybe hope it got through to service if my phone linked up somehow. Yeah. There was nothing like that on either of their phones or their camera. Yeah, I'd be, like, sending, like, everyone a message being like, hey, (laughs) I'm probably going to die, but I love you. Yeah. And, like, this is what happened to me. Yeah. So that's one thing that confuses me and a lot of other people. Okay, so after the backpack was found, another search happened in the area where the backpack was found by both locals and police. 
This search discovered 33 bone fragments in the area, which were then identified through DNA as belonging to Chris and Lisa-Ann. So they had definitive proof that the girls um, had passed away. Most of the bone fragments were from Lisa-Ann's foot, but a large piece of Chris's pelvic bone was also found. That's so sad. Yeah, no cause of death could ever be determined uh, from these bones. Chris's boots were also found behind a tree a bit away from the river um, with one. Yeah, so it was kind of behind a tree, but it was a rainy season. So the water level, I expect, might be able to fluctuate. Um, So it's a bit strange, but honestly plausible. I don't know if they did any like environmental assessments to see if the water level had risen. But yeah, anyways, I, I digress. Um, and one of the boots still had her foot in it. Um, I don't remember that. Yeah. But this isn't really an indicator of foul play because as both of us probably know, animals there, yeah, it could be animals. It could also be like, if you, if a body decomposes in a river or a body of water, if there's shoes on, shoes float and ankle bones can easily break. break and like, there's so many feet in shoes that are found washed up on the Fraser River. Yeah, the feet of the... The Salish Sea feet or something. But yeah, feet, like, feet can stay in shoes as the body decomposes, especially if they're in water. So it's it's disturbing, but it's not... It doesn't confirm foul play. Yeah. Also found, um, interestingly, it was found by locals and the same guide who had alerted authorities, like the same guide that we've been talking about this whole time, mm-hmm. They found the boots, like Chris's boots, and they found uh, Chris's jean shorts, which were folded up nice, neatly and placed on a rock above the river. But the guide says, so the locals say that it was found on the rock. The guide says that they actually found it in the river. So contesting pieces of information. Yeah. Kind of suspicious, but also... If a local didn't know about these girls, they could have seen the jean shorts in the water, picked it up, folded it on the rock, went on their day. Yeah, just assumed that you were doing... I mean, that's what, like, every single Canadian does when they're walking through the woods and someone's toque or gloves are, have fallen off. Someone always puts them on a branch to be like, hey, <laughs> this is... What yeah, you pick it up yeah. and you, like, put it in, like, a, a safe, a safer place. <laughs> yeah. Like, away from the... Yeah. The shorts and the bones were found about an eight-hour walk from where the backpack was found, but along the same river. Hmm. A couple months later, in August 2014, more of Chris's bones were found. Um, And apparently, they were found with bones from a woman and an infant. Was she pregnant? No. Is that what they're saying? Or is it like a small child? Like, they were found, there were three sets of bones found in the same area. Oh. One was from Chris, the other was from another random woman, and the third was from a baby. And they didn't ever investigate it. I couldn't find anything. Why not? I don't know. What? I think the police just assumed, I I think the police just assumed it was like a a local had died in in an accident. Chris just died on top of them. Like, yeah. What? It's weird. No, that's not okay. I know. Yeah. 
So this is why the Dutch think... Why didn't the Dutch get back reinvolved? So they were reinvolved, but I don't... Like, I don't think the Dutch would be able to, like, get these bones because they're not from... Like, they're not Dutch. Yeah. Like, they knew the DNA identified them as Chris, so then Chris, the Dutch were able to be involved in the, vest- in the investigation. But I don't think you'd be allowed to hand over your citizens' DNA to a foreign government. That would not fly. Yeah. I couldn't find any information about this. these other two sets of remains that were found. That's so scary. I know. Okay. More of Lizanne's bones were also found in August, and apparently they were in a condition that would be remarkable, considering that they would have been in the jungle for five months decomposing. Like, apparently the, the flesh on the bones was not in a state that, I don't know, forensics were like, the skin wouldn't be like this if for five months in the jungle. Yeah, but the timeline doesn't add up. Exactly. And also, Chris's bones that were found had seemed to be chemically bleached. There were no phosphates in the soil that would have been able to bleach her bones um, where the bones were found. So some of the things I read were like, this could have been done by a fertilizer or other type of chemical. Yeah. So it's interesting. Lie. Very creepy. There's like a possibility it was done by a person. There's a possibility it was done um, just naturally. It's weird. Yeah, it's still weird. Some of the bones from Lisanne's foot were found to be broken. And some people said this was this could have been due to a fall where she'd broken her foot, but no one is 100% certain. The Dutch say it's not proof of a fall having her, with her broken bones, but the Panamanians, uh, the Panamanian police uh, say that this proves that they fell hmm. to their death. There were lots of monkey bridges over rivers in the area. So a monkey bridge, I, I think, is like a cable across a river or uh, wherever the bridge is going over. And then you have two other cables at like kind of chest height and you just hold on to the cables and like walk the tight rope across. I don't like that. I would never do that. Mm-mm. You will never see me on one of those. Yeah. So these are quite far down the, the trail from where um, you're supposed to turn around and people are like, well, this is weird because really only locals go over these monkey bridges um, is quite a ways from where they would have been on their hike. Maybe they thought that it was would lead them to, like, civilization. That is true, yeah. Because if you see a man-made yeah. um, bridge, then you're going to be like, well, obviously I'm close to some sort of village. I would, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be like, oh my gosh, there's humans nearby. We can do this for help. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the Panama police are like, so they must have gone over the monkey bridge and fallen into the river. And the river has lots of rapids and is really quick moving. And there's like lots of big rocks in the middle. So they're like, this is where the bones broke up. This is why the body isn't um, in one in one piece. But like the Dutch aren't convinced uh, that's what happened. Yeah, I wouldn't be convinced either. I'm not convinced. Yeah. And this is like, why were their bras off? Yeah. Why were there shorts on the side of the river? Why was the backpack not in bad condition? Like, if they fell from a bridge into the river and died... If their bones were broken up, then why aren't their phones broken up? Yeah. Like, if it it can... The force of breaking bones is a lot more force required than breaking it. 
a, a little handheld camera yeah. or an iPhone. So that's kind of all of the information about the case. Um, Chris and Lizanne's parents have returned multiple times. They've hiked the trail. They've been on a lot of Dutch talk shows talking about the case, talking about what they think happened to their daughters. They do not believe that their daughters just had a hiking accident and got lost. They believe that it was foul play. A lot of other people think they got lost, they panicked, they were disoriented. Um, A lot of people think that um, one of the girls was injured and then they couldn't go back and get help. Some people think that Chris passed away and then Lisanne was stuck by herself um, for five days. The thing that gets me is that like if if one of them fell at the beginning of the hike, you'd think that they would separate to try to go back down the trail to at least get signal from where they came. So, like, why didn't they turn around? Why didn't they record messages or take any selfies when they were lost to document yeah. themselves? Why did the police not really do much investigating into the fingerprints? You know, they thought it was a hiking accident and, like, locals likely ship, like went through the bag before realizing it was the girls and turning it in. But it's still a little bit odd. Like, what about the tour guide? Like, he was very involved in the process. You know, he was supposed to take them out hiking the following day, but we only know this from him. He very well could have met them at the trail, and he could have been the one that, you know, was involved in their disappearance. Um, You know, I'm not... I don't really know. Um, But he was there when the bones were found. He was there when the shoes and the the shorts were found. He was the one who turned the backpack in. I think he was honestly just involved because he cared about the case um, and, you know, people in town knew that he was involved, so they w- would likely come to him so he could go to the police. Um, but there are some reviews online about how he's inappropriate with his female customers. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say when you don't have enough evidence. Yeah. Also not suspicious. Like you can rationalize everything. Yeah. There are also tons of people that talk about the trail online and reasons why they think the girls literally could not have gotten lost. It's a well-marked trail. You often see locals and indigenous people walking the trail as they come and go. So they probably like they they did see people on that trail that day. Like people have come forward and were like, yeah, I think I did see two European girls walking that trail. I don't know if it's them, but yeah, same day, right around the same time. So it's likely that they saw other people walking the trail. There are people's homes that are kind of backed up on the trail at the beginning so you wouldn't have to go down all the way to town to get help if an accident did occur. Yeah. Um, There's lots of possibilities. Yeah. Another person was like the monkey bridges that they are kind of thought to have fallen off of are way too far for where they would have gotten like on the day of the hike. And also another person was like the trail, once you pass the summit, like the trail's kind of it gets a little bit more treacherous, but it also gets a lot more creepy because, like, locals have put, like, animal skulls up in trees and, like, hung beads from trees. Um, and the person was like, it, it, I didn't feel threatened, but it did kind of creep me out, so I turned around pretty fast. Um, especially because you, you knew there wasn't much down there. But they would, like, do that for what? Like, why? 
I don't know. <laughs> is it to, like, warn off, like, tourists from going into that area? I don't know. People have different traditions. Yeah. I don't know. Um, some people think that they ran into someone who was bad news on the trail and then kept captive. And then the person kind of turned their phones on and off, uh, like knowing they didn't have service to kind of make it look like they had just disappeared. I, I mean, I didn't know that you could pull data from phones like that. I don't think it was common knowledge in 2014. So I don't really think that is possible. Um, others think they could have stumbled upon a cartel and seen something they weren't supposed to see and gotten murdered for, from it. Um, also on April 5th, so like four or five days after the girls had gone missing, two French women hiked up the trail and were apparently told not to go up the trail by a local man at the bottom because he'd heard screams coming from it a couple days beforehand which was not investigated as just kind of a piece of information online. That's so weird. Yeah. Um, there's lots of other cases of missing and murdered tourists in the area and also missing and murdered um, local Panamanian women. Um, an American girl was murdered there in 2017 and then a British backpacker disappeared from Bocote in 2009. Um, both had gone for hikes or walks in the area by themselves and never returned. In another case, a German tourist went missing on a hike, not in Bocate, but kind of in the same province. And um, she was found and kept captive for three days by three men who were in the search troop for her. What? Yeah. That is spooky. Something like that. Yeah. So people are like, well, maybe the girls ran into the wrong person on the trail. Um, yeah. Wow. That was good job, Megan. Thanks. There's a lot of scary information to go through. Yeah. I personally think that they got lost. Um, they went too far off the trail. Maybe they thought they were going back to town because they did call 911 know when they were supposed to have gotten home so maybe they hiked down thought it was a loop and were like we're not going to make it back in time for before darkness um and then on their way back maybe they got injured um decided to stay the night in the jungle and like recuperate in the morning and then by the time like got even more lost um and then i i think that what the person who took the photos was one of the girls who was delirious because they were so dehydrated and then maybe like you said they saw the bridge were like oh my goodness civilization like i'm gonna go on this bridge because there's like there's people here i can get help and maybe fell off the bridge into the river yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what I I think it is. Like, I think it's probably some sort of accident. But yeah, there's so much weird information on top of that, that it's just like, what what is foul play and what is mistakes that were made? You know? Mm-hmm. Like, they could have even... They could have even, like, 
left their backpack because they were delirious and were like, I don't need this anymore. Like, it's taking up too much energy to carry it. And someone else found it and didn't realize it was the girls. And then when they did realize the girls, it was like, oh, I should probably, like, throw it away. Like, I don't want the police to think I'm part yeah. of this. I'm sure there's, like, a lot of... Um, Oh, why can't I think of the word? But, like, um, uncomfortability, I guess, between um, Indigenous people and the police um, probably not feeling safe. Um, And that's maybe why that they gave the backpack to the guide, because they didn't think that um, it was safe for them to to come forward with that that information, Um, if there's any, like, racial tension or anything like that. That's exactly what I thought, yeah. 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 I don't know. Well, thanks for sharing. <laughs> that was... I, I, I forgot about that case a little bit. Um, but yeah, as soon as you were, like, hiking, I was like, it's those girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really scary, scary case. I mean, that's definitely yeah. why you tell people where you're going you tell them when you're coming back you bring more supplies when you're going into the jungle or the woods or anything than you expect that you need because you never know what can happen yeah like when I go for a hike I always pack as if I'm going to stay the night yeah like I always pack an emergency blanket and extra water not if you're doing like a local hike that's quite common but if you're going like up in the mountains or or anything like if you're going somewhere without service yeah I always make a point to pack as if I'm going to stay the night I don't plan to yeah but I'm like you never if something happens I would rather be prepared yeah than not yep yeah Alrighty. well that's the murders slash crimes of this week what else happened this week tegan something big happened this week we had the election um and the election (laughs) as if it's ours (laughs) yeah it's not ours it felt like it though um yeah no we finally have who won so yay it's biden so no more trump oh man i hated that man i think everyone did I know, me too. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) But yeah, I'm very glad that um, even though we're not American, I can't imagine like the sigh of relief that so many people felt. Yeah, it's definitely a a big change for a lot of people and hopefully people feel a lot more comfortable in their own skin and it's not going to create uh, the environment where those people are threatened anymore. Yeah. So. And I mean, it's not like the magic end to everything, but I feel like Biden is at least a little bit forward thinking and is open to addressing some issues. Like, I know he wants to rejoin the Paris Agreement or whatever. So that's good because the U.S. is one of the biggest polluters in the world. <laughs> and they pulled out of the like mm-hmm. climate agreement. Okay. Anyways, let's enough with uh, American politics from these two Canadians. Let's hear about something better. Any ideas, Tegan? Yeah, I actually have two. Um, First, quickly, uh, if you haven't watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, it's freaking amazing. And you should watch it. I binged it in like two days. 
that was one of the ones that the trailer auto played and I was like oh I should watch that but not right now so I have never been so into chess <laughs> in my entire life like I don't understand it at all but I need more of this show it's so good um yeah so Megan okay I'll put it on my on my Netflix list um, but more importantly, um, we've had a couple people complain that the Harry Styles update stopped last week. Um, so I just wanted to let everyone know Harry is filming Don't Worry Darling in LA. Production has stopped though because someone got oh, COVID. No. So fingers crossed that Harry is safe. Fingers crossed it wasn't our boy. I know. I hope so. i I'm going to pow pow whoever <laughs> accidentally gave him COVID because <laughs> that's not what we need. 2020 would get a million times worse. Tegan, if Harry Styles <laughs> gave you COVID, would you complain? Because <laughs> that means you were in the vicinity <laughs> of Harry yeah. Styles. If I was close enough for him to breathe in my general direction, I would be fine with that. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, so this was a pretty long episode, so do we want to just jump right to it and pull? Yeah, now that our Harry Styles update, um, is done, the most important part of the podcast is over, so we can end it. So, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's get into it. Okay, are you ready, Tegan? Mm-hmm. You get Alberta, Canada. Ooh! Another place that I've been quite frequently, and I've lived there for a year, so I'm excited. Okay, I'm going to do mine now. Oregon, California. Wait. <laughs> Oregon, <Ew>. USA. <laughs> I totally didn't even notice that you did that. I was like, yeah, that's accurate. That makes sense. Oregon, United States of America. <laughs> okay, we need to end this. Because we cannot talk anymore. Tune in next week. Tegan is going to take us to Alberta, Canada. I'm going to do a case from Oregon, USA. Follow us on Instagram at Destination Murder Pod. We've got a website at um, www.destinationmurderpod.com. There you can find our show notes and um, you can search the episodes on a map so you can see where we've done all our episodes and click it and you can listen. Shout out to my dad for suggesting that. Yeah. Smart man. Heck yeah, Brian. What else? Oh, yeah, we have an email. Uh, you can yeah. email us if you want. D-E-S-T underscore murder at gmail.com. Uh, but we're most active on Instagram. So if you want to give us a follow, we would appreciate it. Also, we would appreciate it if you liked, subscribed, rated give us five stars leave us a review it helps us um get picked up by the podcast algorithms so be sure to do that help mm -hmm. us out please do mm -hmm. we like doing this we want to share it with more people Alrighty. goodbye goodbye <laughs> goodbye goodbye tegan <laughs> goodbye megan goodbye listeners goodbye we hope to see you next week or we hope that we get to be in your ears next week, I guess. We don't really yeah. get to see each other much, do we? Bye. Peace. Adios. Buenos dias. I don't know what that meant. Like, <laughs> why did I just say that? <laughs>